This is Radioactive Summer Break. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for joining me this evening. Coming up, Utah Foster Care CEO Mike Hamblin, who will share the mission and needs of the nationally recognized nonprofit, which finds, trains, and supports Utah families who are willing and able to provide nurturing homes for kids in foster care. He's also got a pick for our Songs of Summer playlist, which is growing by the day, thanks to all of you. You can check it out online at krcl.org, but you should also add your pick to our Songs of Summer playlist. Just leave me a voicemail at 385-800-1889 and dedicate a song to someone in your life, a nonprofit or cause you support, or just shout out some musical inspiration to the community. Be sure to tell me your first name and your neighborhood in that voicemail, and then play DJ and dedicate that song. Here's one now. Hey, Laura. It's Brian Kelm of Salt Lake City. Actually, I've spent the month of July uh, wing foiling up in the Columbia River Gorge, which is the home stomping grounds of Curtis Salgado, um, the Soul Blues Male Artist of the Year for 2021 and composer of my favorite song of summer. This song just absolutely oozes and is definitive of summer. Summertime Life from Curtis Salgado on his CD, Soul Activated. Songs of Summer on the Radioactive Summer Break. This is the Radioactive Summer Break. More music discovery and still community amplified weeknights at 6 here on KRCL. I'm your host, Laura Jones. Fostering Hope, a benefit for the good works of Utah foster care, is coming up Friday night, 4 to 7, at Mountain West Cider in Salt Lake City. Should you attend, your donation will help support the nonprofit's special programs, including the Wishing Well Fund, the Foster Parent Mentor Program, and new therapeutic support services that you're going to hear about in just a moment. But primarily, your support goes to kids who need our help in our own community. I spoke with Mike Hamblin, CEO of Utah Foster Care, to learn more. I appreciate being here, Laura. Thanks for having me. I'm curious how the pandemic has affected foster care in our community. On one assumption might be that nobody's going into foster care as a result, but I'm guessing that would be, you know, happy thinking. Yeah, that's the one thing that maybe has not been impacted by the pandemic. I mean, there, there's... um. It, it's interesting that we could really get into it as far as what all of this looks like, just for an example. So kids come into foster care when there's been abuse or neglect, and it's deemed to be serious enough that they need to be protected and kept safe while their parents um, fix whatever those issues are at home for them to be able to return home. So a piece of that reality is when we were in lockdown mode early on in the pandemic, then kids were seen a lot less, right? They weren't going to school. They weren't going out to friends' houses. So when kids are seen less, then there's not somebody seeing the abuse or neglect that can report it. So there may have been a short time period where that was a little bit less, but the reality is, is that um, that it, uh, now we've got, you know, kids are coming into foster care essentially as they always have. Um, and there is there's continues to be an ongoing need for families to care for those children. Give me the lay of the land in terms of how many kids are in foster care on any given day versus how many parents are available to take them in. That's a great question. So we have around, just depending on the day, as you say, um, we have around 
2,300 children that are in foster care in the state of Utah. And there's probably close to 4,500 that pass through the foster care system each year. Um, and as I mentioned before, the goal is to try and help parents resolve those issues and get them back home. So it's kind of a rotating door of kids coming and going. Um, and at the same time, we tend to sit right around 1,150 to 1,200 foster families. Um, and so obviously those numbers don't match up completely. At the same time, there are some children that come in in sibling groups and we try to keep siblings together. So it's not necessarily a one-to-one -one match. Um, the other thing that can be challenging sometimes is for kids, um, coming into foster care is a traumatic experience, right? They've already experienced the trauma of whatever abuse or neglect it was that got them into foster care in the first place. And now we have the added trauma of, you know, even though it may have been an abusive or neglectful setting, we're taking them away from something that they're familiar with and putting them somewhere completely new and foreign to them. Um, and, and if that completely new and foreign situation includes a home that is outside of their neighborhood or a home that's too far from the school they've been attending for them to continue attending that school, you know, all of those things potentially contribute to um, to that tra traumatic experience that kids have. I, as, a, as a caseworker more than 20 years ago, I remember having a child that, uh, that was originally from, uh, from Tooele and, uh, and ended up having to be placed in the Salt Lake Valley. And, uh, and most of the visits with his parents, most of the things that were going on with him happened in Salt Lake. And so there was a court hearing one day that I drove him back to Tooele for. And as we drove into town, his little nose was pegged to the window. And as we passed every block going down Main Street, he pointed out different buildings and said, look, they've got a new roof, they've planted a tree, you know, something's been painted. He was noticing all of these things that had changed as part of his community that he had been taken away of. And I think that's when I had that first aha moment of, you know, there's there when, when kids are removed from their parents, it's not just their parents who they're removed from, they are removed from everything they're familiar with, from friends, uh, from school teachers, from all of the support systems that they may have had that were, were supporting them through that traumatic experience of abuse or neglect. So, you know, getting back to that question of uh, how many families are there and how many children are there, one of the pieces of that equation is we need to make sure we've got sufficient families within every neighborhood, within every community. So as children come into foster care, Hopefully they can stay within their same community where they recognize, you know, the stores when they go grocery shopping, they recognize, they can go to the same school, they can maintain their teachers and some of those friendships that they have to reduce the trauma they experience from the, from this whole uh, foster care experience in their lives. Talking with Mike Hamblin, CEO of Utah Foster Care, which came into being years ago. Give us a bit of the origin story on the mission for Utah Foster Care, would you, Mike? Sure. So um, years ago, in the back in the 90s, Utah was, um, was struggling with their foster care system and, and was actually sued by the National Center for Youth Law based on some struggles with the foster care system. And it was about the same time that Mike Levitt became governor that the lawsuit was happening. And, uh, and as time went by, um, they, were, they really struggled with trying to improve the system. And one of the, uh, one of the thoughts that Mike Levitt had was that uh, – 
in order for the system to improve, there needed to be kind of a continual inflow of quality, well-trained foster families to care for the children that were in foster care. And at the time, I was actually working as a caseworker for the Division of Child and Family Services and saw what we, he was talking about firsthand. It was, it was interesting. We had one person in our office that was responsible to recruit and train foster families. And if caseloads went up, if, if additional children came into foster care that we didn't necessarily have enough caseworkers for, then that person responsible for training and recruiting was given caseloads. And right in the moment that we needed more families, we had fewer families coming in and fewer families being trained. And so Mike Levitt's thought was, um, if we had a private nonprofit separate entity that could focus on recruiting and training families all of the time and, and help us maintain this continuous inflow of families, uh, that would help the system as far as improving the foster care system and get the get provide better care for the children that were coming in as well. And so, and, and a part of that was the thought that a private nonprofit would be better positioned to work in the community with churches, with businesses, with other organizations and would be in a position to potentially do things like we're doing next Friday with this, um, with this fundraiser to be able to provide additional services for children and families in foster care. We'll get to that in a minute, but I want to understand a little bit more about how the pandemic has changed the foster parent experience and how Utah foster care has adjusted over the last 16, 18 months. That's a great question. So most of what we did in the past was in person. Uh, before any, uh, any family began the licensing process to become a foster parent, one of our staff would go out and meet with them in their home and answer any questions they had and just kind of make sure they understood the state's expectations. And then once that was done, if they decided to go forward, they would begin attending classes, which were also all in person. And all of that changed overnight. We went from all of these in-person meetings and in-person classes uh, to suddenly all of the meetings were uh, via Zoom. And all of the classes were also held virtually online uh, so that families could continue to attend the classes and be trained, but without having that in-person that in-person contact. And I think it's been good. We've been able to continue and, and families have still come in and families have still taken the training. Families have continued to be licensed and that's great. I think it's been a challenge for many families that there's been a, a lack of contact so some of the support systems that we provide for families, I guess backing up, a lot of families meet and make friends with other families as they're going through the training process that helps build into their support system. You're talking about um, host foster families, right? About, yeah, about the host foster parents. So foster parents, will the, the tra there's eight training classes, and each of these training classes is three hours long. And so by the time a family has been through those 24 hours of training, sitting in the same room, you know, next to other people that are taking training, they've kind of created some friendships um, and created that support system I mentioned. And then we also have uh, foster parent peer support groups that would get together on a monthly basis. And at those meetings, it was always, there's always a combination. They're all geographically based. And so there would be a combination of new families attending along with very experienced families. And so if the, if the new families had an issue or a behavior that they were not sure what to do about or how to, how to handle it, they could speak with an experienced family and get that added support right there at these peer support groups. And, and when all of that went away, um, it made it more difficult for families to have that support, right? It's different when you walk into a room and look around and say, there's 20 other people that are all experiencing the same thing I'm experiencing 
versus when you're sitting at home and feeling very isolated. And, and for most families, um, they don't necessarily have friends or relatives that are foster parents. And some do, which is great. They've got that added support if they do. But for many, they don't. And so uh, if they don't have those other connections with other foster families, um, oftentimes the connections they do have are, you know, their, their typical support system are people who don't necessarily understand what it's like to be a foster parent and, and can't, don't really know how to support someone that's in that position. Well, let's talk about greatest needs for Utah foster care. Our listeners love to get involved, and I'm guessing there's roles to play as a foster parent or family, but also non-parent related that uh, you need uh, you need folks to help out with. Yeah, all all the way around, definitely. So, I, so I would say, you know, as you mentioned, the greatest need is for foster families, um, and we need families that are willing and able to care for siblings, uh, so that we can keep brothers and sisters together. Um, some of the most uh, challenging children, uh, as far as finding families that are, are prepared and willing to care for them, tends to be the older school-age children and teens. Um, and it's not necessarily because the older children are more difficult as much as um, a, lot of, a lot of folks are a little bit nervous about bringing a teen into their home. And so, uh, and, and I guess what I would say to that as well is that there's a continuum of children, right? There's a continuum of uh, kids coming into foster care as far as what they've experienced, what their needs are, how all of that fits. And there may be some children, you know, of every, well, there are children of all ages from birth up to 18 who, um, who are just typical children that have experienced some trauma. Um, and you would expect there to be a reaction to that trauma. And then there are some children that have experienced some severe trauma that are, are maybe having a more severe reaction and, and need someone with a little bit more experience as far as handling some of those behavioral issues or some of those challenges that come with it. So it really just depends, but there's, you know, I, I used to tell people all the time that I've known some six year olds that I would be afraid to take home with me. And I've known some 16 year olds that I would have no problem at all having them come stay in my home. So it's really more about the individual children versus any specific age. So that's the one need, right? There's a need for foster families specifically that would, I mean, families that would care for any children, but the, the greatest need tend to revolve around sibling groups as well as older children. Um, those that are unsure about being a foster parent are not in, in a position to be a foster parent right now. Um, we were actually in the process of developing a volunteer program about the time the pandemic hit. And so as we're coming out of that now, we're back to uh, looking at how we can put that together and, and getting everyone prepared um, to kick off this volunteer program. And so that's on our website at utahfostercare.org. There's a place people that may be interested in volunteering can go and fill out a form. Um, and then we can, uh, we can work with them on what some of those volunteer opportunities are. And then the final one is there are, um, the, the state provides for the basic care of children in foster care. So they'll, they'll provide for the very basic care, but they don't necessarily provide for a lot of the normal activities that children participate in. So we have a wishing well fund where we help pay for, uh, for children to be able to take music lessons, for example, or purchase instruments. Um, we've paid for sports camps and sports participation. We've paid for prom dresses. Um, we've paid for bicycles. Uh, foster families will get a basic reimbursement that's kind of in that $16 a day range, right around you know $500 a month. And out of that, they're paying for all the food, all the clothing, uh, any 
curricular activities. You know, if you've got a teenage girl and suddenly you've got different hair products that you're worried about, or if somebody wants to go to the movies, all of that comes out of that basic reimbursement. And what we find is that most families end up spending more than what they receive. And, and while, you know, we're, we're very happy for these families that are willing to volunteer of their, you know, their homes and their lives to be foster parents. I don't feel like it should be a financial burden for them to help provide those kinds of normal activities for kids that are coming into their home. I mean, for some families, it's something as simple as they've saved up for a couple of years to go to Disneyland and all of a sudden the child's placed with them and they need an extra, you know, three or $400 to buy another pass into the park or potentially another airline ticket. And so even something as simple as that. So there's always a need for, for people to donate. Another service that we're, uh, that we've, that we've kicked off is mentors for new foster families. So as a foster family gets licensed and has a child placed in their home for the very first time, um, we will assign an experienced foster family um, to get into contact with them and mentor them through, the, through that first few months of having a child in their home, help them recognize or understand how to fill out the different paperwork, help them um, handle the adjustment, um, just help normalize what that situation is for them with someone who's been there and done that, and that which is just huge. And then the final, this is kind of a new, this is the, this is our, um, probably the first time it's been discussed in public, but we're kicking off a new service um, later this month, uh, or I guess in August here, so later this month, that's focused on providing therapeutic supports for foster families. So often we will hear from families, even as they're thinking about it, that will say, you know, I, I understand there's a need for foster families, but I just don't think I could do it. I don't think I could take a child into my home and take care of them for a year and then have them leave. And that's a very real concern. And what we hear over and over again is families that are struggling with the grief and loss of having cared for a child in their home that then leaves. Um, when I was uh, when Utah Foster Care had just started a little over 20 years ago, I remember talking to a mom, a foster mom, who uh, had two children of her own that were five years old and three years old, and she had been fostering two children that were three and one. And she called me about a week after these kids had gone home, and she just said, my kids cry every day. They miss their brother and sister that were here and are now gone. They were with us for a year and now they're gone. And I don't know what to do for them. I don't know how to help them. And so this new therapeutic service will, will be a licensed clinical social worker who can work with individuals and families, can help families like this mom I'm talking about know what she can do to help her children process the grief and loss of, of having children move out, but also help adults you know, other foster parents do that. And really what the goal is, I mean, part of it is to reduce that experience of grief and grief and loss for foster families. But a big part of the reason we want to do that is families or children in foster care benefit from being with a, an experienced foster parent. And it's not uncommon for us to have a foster parent go through that experience once, have the child go home and decide I can never do that again. And if we can provide some supports that will help them um, help them work through that grief and loss and get to a place where they're, where they're ready to open their hearts to experience it again, then that benefits the children, uh, having someone who's had that experience of caring for traumatized kids and has had that specialized training. I also understand that many of your foster families say one of the most rewarding things is helping children re reunify with their birth families. 
Absolutely. They, they struggle with, it's really a paradox of sorts. They struggle with, with it either way. And what I mean by that is um, most of our family, you know, we, we focus a lot on the goal of reunification. We know that that's what we're trying to do. And, and I think everyone would agree that if children can return home to a safe home to, you know, parents who can nurture and care and love them and provide for them, that that's what's best. And that's what we want to have happen. There are some families you know, that are maybe looking at growing their family through adoption. So they're looking at that as a potential outcome at some point, but not necessarily with every child. But what we run into is for a lot of families, whether the children go home or the children go on to be adopted, it ends up to be a bittersweet moment, Mm -hmm. right? If the children go home, then there's that bittersweet element of, you know, that they're gone. There's the success of knowing that you've, you know, that you accomplished that goal of helping children return home but there's the loss of the children leaving. And then if the children are unable to go home, then there's that loss of, you know, in some ways we were unsuccessful in, in getting the child home, but, and, and maybe not even that as much as just the knowledge that this is a child who has lost that permanent connection to their family of origin. Um, but that's also comes with the happiness of knowing that the child will be a permanent part of their life. You know, you don't have to go into being a foster parent knowing everything. In fact, you've got training classes and a new one, a new session coming up in particular for Latino foster parents, I understand. Yeah, we'll have a Spanish language class that will start this fall. Where can people get more details about that as well as Fostering Hope, the benefit that's happening Friday, August 6th, 4 to 7 at Mountain West Cider? Um, just our website, utahfostercare.org. Uh, we do have a, a Spanish Um, mirror to that site where the Spanish language folks can go on to get more information about the Spanish classes and and about being a foster parent. Um, There's also information about our event um, on the 6th. We'd love to have people come and join us and and hear a little bit more about the work that foster families do and how they can support that work, even if they can't be foster families themselves. Mike Hamblin of Utah Foster Care. Look for a link in tonight's show notes to not only the nonprofit, but information for their Fostering Hope benefit this Friday night at Mountain West Cider. It is a 21-plus event, folks. To wrap our conversation, I asked Mike for a pick to add to our Songs of Summer playlist. My daughters have pulled my wife into the BTS stuff recently, (laughs) the K-pop stuff. And so if you come by our house, it's not very many days that you can go without hearing one of their permission to dance or whatever the latest is. That's what's mostly going on. But I I stick more to some of the classic rock stuff. Okay, Um, what you got? You know, I'm going to go with um, Brian Adams, Summer of 69. To me, that's kind of a nice... When I think of summer, I think of driving in the car with the windows down. I happen to be born in 69. I'm giving my age away. So that song has always spoken to me when it, when it comes to summer. Well, let's send this out to everybody born in 69. What do you say? Sounds great. Thank you so much for the interview and best of luck with your, your benefit on the 6th. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Laura. Yep, have a great one. I just put the first KRCL bumper sticker on my car. And now I'm sporting KRCL wherever I go. I officially am a part of the KRCL family. Hi, I'm Trina Baghumian, KRCL's new Director of Underwriting and Special Events. If you own or manage a local business, I would love to connect you with our listeners. With thousands of sets of ears tuned to our station each week, your message will reach folks who value and support Utah's local business community. Become a KRCL sponsor today. Email me at trinab at krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now!, 
Followed at 8 by Red, White, and Blues with birthday boy Brian Kelm. Michelle's Night Train at 10.30 and John Florence with your brand new day at 6 a.m. You can find our programming lineup and the last two weeks of just about any show on our website, krcl.org. I've got some Desmond Decker on deck, some Bobby Hebb, Janelle Monet, but I wanted to leave you with the latest from Intermountain Healthcare on the COVID situation. Here's Dr. Eddie Stenyum. When you look back the past month and a half, you're just seeing this linear line going up um, with more and more cases. You know, then you offset that by a couple of weeks, and that same line has occurred in terms of hospitalizations. And now, you know, we're at a point where um, our hospitals are again full. You know, we're over that 85% capacity benchmark that we've set, um, and we know that when you get to be running a hospital at 90% capacity. Um, things aren't as efficient. Um, you know, you don't have ICU rooms readily available for those trauma patients or whatever it might be. And so, you know, if we continue on this trend, um, we're going to be back in that same position where we were in in December and January, where we've got a big issue from a capacity standpoint in terms of taking care of our patients, which then leads to downstream impacts of we need more clinicians, we need more nurses, we need all those things to be able to care for those patients, which then trickles down to, you know, what are we not doing um, for our communities and for our patients? And so it's a, it's certainly a disturbing trend of kind of the direction that we're headed. Um, and we hope that we can kind of change course, especially as we're thinking about school going back in session here in the next, I can't believe it, you know, in another month or so. In the same briefing for media, Dr. Stenyum also talked about waning vaccine immunity and the need for a booster shot. And what they've seen is that when you give a third shot, you are increasing those antibody levels very significantly, you know, 5, 10, 15 percent or times, five times what they were after the second dose. And so what they're showing is that the vaccine efficacy is waning with time. And that if you give a third dose, you increase antibody levels, which most likely is going to mean that you're going to have increased vaccine efficacy after that third dose. Um, And these are data that they're taking to the FDA and the European FDA to um, try to get approval for a third dose, even before um, the FDA grants, you know, full um, BLA, um, you know, getting the, the full accreditation of the FDA for the vaccine. Um, so that's where we're at in terms of, you know, what Pfizer's doing and what they've reported recently um, in their earnings report. Dr. Eddie Stenyum. For COVID testing and vaccination sites, visit coronavirus.utah.gov. You may also find a link on our website, krcl.org.